News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this morning we are going to be talking about your dreams. I know it's not always easy to remember your dreams, but can you remember that time that maybe you just dreamt something kind of crazy, just popped up there? Wild and wacky things seem to sometimes happen in our dreams, don't they? Then you wake up and you go, what was that all about? And yet in your dream, it all seemed perfectly normal. How does our brain do that? Joining us this morning is Dr. Dean Burnett, who's a neuroscientist and author of Emotional Ignorance. Love the title, by the way. Dr. Burnett, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. appreciate it. Well, I'm one of those people who never, well, never, I shouldn't say, who, who doesn't often remember what I dreamt about when I woke up. Is that normal? Yeah, I think that's perfectly normal. I'd say that's more normal than not. I think people do occasionally remember a dream. I don't know if it's particularly weird, a particularly vivid one, or if it's quite intense. But most of your dreams you don't remember. Most, like most mornings, you wake up and have no real thoughts about what what, what your head played throughout the night. It just occasionally becomes a bit more stimulating, and that sticks with you a bit longer. But yeah, the normal is uh, the normal approach. Approach the normal like response is to not remember them very well. Okay, so then when I do dream something crazy, and I'm sure we've all done that, right? You wake up and you go, "What mm. the heck was that? What's going on in my brain?" Well, it's sort of kind of a complex process and that it's widely agreed now that, you know, there's a lot of evidence for it, that what's happening when you're dreaming is your brain's sorting out your new memories and reinforcing your old ones. It's sort of like doing housekeeping or like bookkeeping. Like, 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 when, like, like when a library has to de- deliver new books, it's got to be you know, put on all the right shelves and things have to be rotated. It's doing that. Um, but every sort of memory we have is made up of indis- you know, dis- discrete elements or units of memory. And those need to be worked into the wider system. So, uh, say if you have a memory of like something you experienced in the day, which was stressful, like people have come and have a lot of stress in the workplace and stuff. So now you have memories for stress, like elements of memory which are stressful, and your brain needs to sort of integrate that into your existing you know, mental network. So what it does, it sort of try and sort of dilute it. It sort of takes that stress element and links it to other things which have been known to cause stress. So. If you have like a stressful experience at work, you will end up having a stressful dream which about something else. Like, uh, you know, say if like your boss yelled at you and you felt panicked, but then you have a dream about being stuck in the sea or you know, uh, teeth falling out is a common one. So it's your brain's way of trying to you know integrate your new memories into your existing system. But that means it has to trigger the existing memories uh, in no particular order. So what you get is this huge chaotic jumble of. Uh, you know, random elements which don't often make sense. They can be completely physically impossible. Like you can be sitting underwater on fire, and that's just not possible. But even if you've thought of these things or remember them, that can happen. And uh, no, your dream doesn't care. Just like right, I'm going to link all these things together, and the end the end result is of no concern of mine. And so I'm just going to make make sure all the memories work together. Um, so it's sort of like that, really. It's, it's wow. your brain processing memories. That is. Unbelievable! Like that is that the way you just described that is <laughs> so fascinating. Brilliant. So it is brilliant. Um, that makes so much sense, though, when you talk about the connection between a good night's sleep or getting good sleep and and brain health, mm. essentially, right? Because that's your obviously your brain's processing time. Yeah, totally. It's, it's, it's your brain's. It's doing housekeeping. It's doing the essential maintenance, and as well as um, that, that's sort of like the actual you know, the experience of dreams, like all the, the weird things that happen. But sleep itself is really important you know it, the things your brain are doing is doing during the day it's countless millions of cellular processes and they 
have byproducts, you know, like you know, like a car and it gives off emissions and they need to be cleared away, much like you know, much like the trash is cleared from the street. And then some of that happens when you're awake, but most of it happens in your sleep. So if you don't get enough sleep, you're, you know, the the detractors of your brain builds up and clogs up the works. And the same thing with if you don't get enough sleep or dreams, these new memories just sit there floating and getting in the way and you know they, they, they just you know, block up the, the essential cognitive aspects and stuff. And it's also they say when you sleep on something, you know, if you've got a problem, sleep on it. And actually is a neurologically sound bit of advice because when you are asleep, because your brain is doing all this, you know, connecting to new memories, it opens up new pathways which you haven't tried yet or you haven't been able to access when you're awake so when right. you wake up you have new solutions in your head it's, oh yeah because your brain's connected uh, this new problem to huh. uh, different networks so, i do yeah, that all the time it is a scientifically valid piece of advice yeah. oh i do that all the time that's what i tell myself yeah. now people always look for meaning in their dreams right like oh i dreamt that therefore it mm. must mean xyz is that is that valid um there's an element of that. I mean, the thing when people don't read dreams and say, like, you know, you know, I had a dream where all my teeth fell out and uh, my mother set caught, caught fire and it was, I was on the moon. And then they say, ah, that's because you're worried about, uh, uh, you know, a project. Oh, that's, it's a bit of a mundane interpretation of something so wild. But there is going to be some recurring themes because, you know, if it's sort of working through your newly acquired memories, something you think about a lot or something enters your memory a lot is going to manifest more often. So if you are you know, subconsciously stressed about something or subconsciously worried and you haven't sort of recognized that yet, it might appear more and more often in your dreams. And therefore, you know, like, oh, why can you have these recurring dreams about a stressful experience? And that's sort of your dream telling you that, yeah, you are stressed about something. Something is clearly occupying your mind and you're, you're not accepting it or you're not recognizing it and you need to do that. So there is going to be some element of, um, you know, interpretation to be had and, Things like recurrent nightmares, those are actually quite uh, reliable indicators of an incoming mental health problem uh, or like a decline in mental health because the ability, your brain's ability to process these newly acquired emotions, emotional memories, is finite. So if something keeps maxing them out, like so you've got too much negative emotion built up to deal with, you keep having nightmares and waking up, that's your brain being unable to work its way through uh, you know, the, the backlog of negative things in your head. So it's usually a good indicator of um, you know, incoming issues. Okay, so how do you, what is the line there? How do you tell when you're having too many dreams about mental health issues instead of just like the occasional one, right, where you're having a problem? Yeah, well, it's, it's usually nightmares, specifically nightmares. I mean, you can have weird dreams. I mean, all dreams are weird when you think about them or if you remember them. But um, if it's like they are constantly negative and to the point where they are actually disrupting your sleep, that's usually a time to say, right, okay, this is unhelpful. This is clearly counterproductive. Sleep is when you are, you know, when your brain fixes things and processes things. And if it's unable to do that, that suggests there's more going on in your head than uh, your typical systems can manage. So you know, outside intervention would be a good idea. Um, yeah, so if it's recurrent, constant nightmares, not all the time, but like way more than usual, then that suggests there's something amiss that you know, some, you know, some external person could perhaps help you with. Dr. Burnett, it sounds like we really underestimate what's going on in our brains when we sleep. Hmm. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I think people just think it's shut down. But yeah. uh, I think the studies show that you know, your brain is, in terms of the energy produced and the activity present, it's like 95% as active uh, when you're asleep as when you're awake. Um, I mean, the parts which control movement and you know, perception, those aren't on because obviously you're asleep, you're unconscious. But 
the brain's doing a still doing a considerable amount of work in terms of you know fixing up all the new memories, clearing all the way the, the, the debris. It's sort of it's like when you you see like a, a concert venue which shut down, but it's been dismantled after the after the gig. Right. There's still plenty of work going on in there. It's just you know, <laughs> the audience has gone home. So so it doesn't yeah. matter how weird your dream is it's something that your brain is is trying to process something that's happened to you that your brain is trying to process yeah totally i mean it for, for, for your you know, your internal brain systems it probably does make a certain amount of sense so look i have memory of uh, this person i met this person today their face looks like something i met someone i met like years ago in, in a park so i remember the public out to the park and uh, you know so all these things pop up and um which is why dreams feel so familiar while they're happening because although they're so usually so wild and you know, physically impossible they're all made of memories so from your brain's perspective this is all familiar stuff it's just elements of memories played in a you know it's, it's like your memories on a shuffle it's just sort of playing this random assortment of memory bits which uh, your brain has already encountered just not in this particular configuration okay now you the way you described that is so vivid i can see that for sure <laughs> uh, thank, you you, <laughs> thank you so much for your time this morning no problem at all thanks very much that's dr dean burnett a neuroscientist and author of emotional ignorance and i feel like i learned so much about dreams this morning this is mornings with simmy Right now, we're going to talk about a foreign agent influence registry. Now, advocates say this is the way to combat the impact of foreign influence in our democracy, that it would require individuals to declare their relationships with foreign governments and businesses. Now, the federal liberal government says it is considering such a registry because of the concerns of foreign influence in our elections. But there are also concerns about a registry too. So joining us now to talk about that is Dr. Jordan Stanger-Ross, who's an associate professor of history and project director of Landscapes of Injustice at the University of Victoria. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, so what, what, do you, what goes through your mind when you think about the idea of a, a foreign agent registry in Canada? Well, I've been working for uh, the last 10 years on the history of the 1940s in Canada and uh, the registration uprooting, internment, dispossession, and exile of Japanese Canadians. And when I first saw in early March news of the registry, and then as I've observed political pressure on the Liberals to uh, introduce such a registry in Canada, for me, there was um, at least concern that uh, such a mechanism could lead us down a path that um, is, is too reminiscent for me of, of 1940s Canada. In what way? What do you mean? I think the the core um, mistake of the 1940s was to misdirect concern about foreign conflict, genuine concern about a country with which we were at war, um, to misdirect that concern toward Canadians. And in reading the information circulated uh, by the um, Ministry of Public Safety about this uh, potential register, I see a similar um, move to 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 target Canadians in a misdirection of um, of concern about a foreign um, a foreign power. And of course, there's in both cases a community in Canada, Japanese Canadians and uh, Chinese Canadians in, in uh, the present case, um, long-standing multi-generational communities that I fear uh, in the 1940s did and that I fear in the in the present or future could um, 
suffer as a result of those uh, misdirections of policy. Okay, so what is the difference then, uh, Dr. Stanger-Ross, between that idea and say what they're doing in other countries like Australia, where they do have a registry such as this? And there's been some concern that that registry has helped to stoke uh, anti-Chinese uh, Australian sentiment in Australia. Let's remember that the 1940s was also a time when Australia registered, interned, and exiled Japanese Australians. The 1940s was a time when the United States did the same. So looking around at allied countries and saying, well, they're doing the same thing, isn't sufficient, I don't think, to justify a policy or to allay concerns about it. I mean, that that exactly perhaps the mistake of the 1940s um, in some ways was to follow um, uh, an international um, um, policy trend among our uh, allies to the detriment of Canadians. So let's have a careful look at the, at the proposals themselves in Canada rather than um, merely looking around and saying, oh, well, there's a registry in Australia, there's a registry in the United States. What's actually being proposed? And in the materials that are circulated for public consultation, the example of malign influence is an academic who has a conversation with a foreign principal, which is a concept that's very vaguely um, defined, and then expresses views that are deemed to be supportive of enemy interests or foreign interests. Um, That notion that a conversation with someone who is deemed to represent foreign interests could then mean that a Canadian's views on the topic publicly expressed or expressed in an op-ed or on a radio show like this, that those views could be criminally culpable, uh, that's very concerning to me and doesn't seem to get at the issues that Canadians are concerned about. Okay, but is that what the registry is saying, though? The registry isn't necessarily saying that it would make those actions criminal. Well, you should read the, you and other people should read the information being circulated by our um, Ministry of Public Safety. They have a public consultation site and they have, it's a little bit little bit hard to find uh, all the, the explanations of the registry, but they have precisely that is described. The example I've just used is the only example uh, used to describe what malign influence might mean, and it could result in criminal charges and fines. And the nature of the relationship that would have to give rise to those charges is very unclear. It could be an instance where the Canadian in question has received no benefit uh, from from the foreign principle. They even suggest in those materials that the uh, Canadian need not yet have expressed those views. They might merely intend right. to express those views. So these, these um, materials, which I think is the best information we have about what the government is contemplating here, um, should be of real concern to us. Okay, so is that the key then, do you think, that obviously, you know, the, maybe perhaps the general public has one vision of it, but the actual nitty-gritty of what is being proposed here is something that goes beyond that. So is it all about how this is written and what we actually plan to do with it? I think that starting down a path that would target Canadians and people in Canada probably won't answer um, won't answer the 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 challenges that we face. And I expect that, you know, um, unfortunately, our sense of conflict or indeed our conflict and 
international tensions with China are likely to worsen and, uh, you know, over the coming years rather than, you know, rapidly improve. So I think starting down a route of um, policy that takes aim at Canadians for views they might have or views they might express or supposed relationships they have, um, I think that's just not the direction. So I think it's it's the nitty gritty, but it's also just that 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 kind of targeting of the policy is that there must be some ways, and I'm not expert in this, of um, aiming those policies directly at China or at or directly at government agents who contribute to campaigns or you know the, the you know the the targeting Canadians for having relationships with or views that are sympathetic to foreign principles or foreign interests, whatever those uh, terms are meant to mean. I just think, and asking Canadians to register those arrangements or relationships that we might have with people who live outside of Canada, um, I think that whole direction of policy is misguided. Right, because you're talking about having a relationship, but where is the proof that something has actually been done that is wrong? Sure, and even if I have a relationship... um, with a um, with a, a foreign official, let's say, and many academics and many Canadians, of course, have relationships. You know, students come from abroad, and and so on, and journalists work with people abroad, um, and we may we may share views with with those people. We may we may in fact be sympathetic to the interests of a foreign country. None of that should be at all within the scope. I don't think of criminal. Um, concern. Right. What is though? Like, I guess uh, I wonder then what, what is the way to do this that would allay some Canadians concerns? Well, that I don't know. I don't know. You know, that's beyond my scope of expertise, but when you float a registry of this kind, that's so reminiscent of those, um, you know, there was this concern in the 1940s to register and to keep track of people in Canada, Canadians, many of them having lived in Canada for generations, been born in Canada, who supposedly represented the interests of Japan, um, and um, and that that impulse in policy was profoundly misguided and led to some of the 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 um, you know worst uh, uh, mistakes of Canadian policy and legal history, in my view. And so um, I don't know how you conduct. Um, international conflict with China, if that's what our government is doing. Um, but I, do, but what I do know is, uh, or at least I think I know, is that we oughtn't start replicating the kinds of approaches um, that we exercised in the 1940s, which, um, you know, again was a was a context of very real and uh, serious international uh, conflict in which a racialized community in Canada suffered the brunt of policies that were aimed at, uh, in part, kind of weeding out the prospect of of Japanese influence in Canada. And that didn't make a single Canadian safer, uh, didn't help us win the war, um, you know, was completely misdirected. So if you ask me, how should Canada have better conducted the war in you know, in the Pacific, I don't know that much about military <laughs> tactics in the 1940s either, but I do know a fair bit about the policies that were directed at Canadians in the 1940s. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. 
Okay, thank you. That was a really interesting discussion. Dr. Jordan Stanger-Ross is an associate professor of history and project director of Landscapes of Injustice at the University of Victoria talking about this proposed foreign influence transparency registry. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. What exactly are police trained to do? The reason we ask this question is not just because of stories in the news about police behavior, but specifically because of what's been heard in testimony at the inquest into the death of Miles Gray, who had an altercation with Vancouver police in 2015 that led to his death. Now, we've heard at this inquest that the first officer on the scene said she couldn't recall having any kind of uh, de-escalation training or training dealing with people having a mental health crisis. And that really surprised me. I mean, what are police trained in when it comes to those kinds of situations? Well, Dr. Scott Blanford is an assistant professor and program coordinator of policing and public safety at Laurier University and has decades of experience, not just in teaching, but in policing as well and joins us now. Thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for asking me. So when it comes to training then, is is de-escalation training a, a part of what police learn? Uh, it is. And again, I, I'm in Ontario, so our training is, is a little bit different. But generally across the country, it's consistent in how officers are trained. At the basic recruit level, they are trained in the use of force model. And that includes uh, communication, officer presence, uh, the use of empty hand or soft techniques, impact weapons or intermediate uh, weapons, all the way up through lethal force. So part of that is de-escalation. That is always a tactical consideration that's built into the use of force response model. And that is taught to all officers at the basic recruit level and then is reinforced through generally annual uh, recertification in use of force. That includes firearms and empty hand techniques and dealing with mental health uh, persons in distress. Okay, let me ask you then, what is the use of force model? It's a model that's been accepted across Canada. There's different variations, but it, it arose out of uh, discussions back in the early 80s on how to articulate the different levels of force that are used in response to the actions of a particular subject. So there's a national model and that's been adopted by uh, the vast majority of police organizations in, in Canada. The British Columbia uh, Police Act requires a police service to adopt a model, and, and the generally accepted model has been put out by the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. And it's basically, it's, it's a wheel, so it's meant as a continuum. What does that mean? Uh, it, it means that it's, the officer is constantly assessing and responding. So it's, rather than it, it, traditional use of force models were very linear in nature, in, like a staircase in that you had to move from one level to the next and there wasn't the option to to de-escalate situations necessarily. The, that's why the new use of force model has been designed as a wheel. So it allows for a constant reassessment of the situation and that use of force can either escalate or de-escalate depending upon the actions and the tactical considerations of the subject. Okay, and what is the empty hand technique? That could be something as simple as taking physical control of a person. In order to physically uh, arrest a person, an officer has to take control of them at some point. That's part of the arrest process. And so that could be something as simple as putting a hand on a person's arm. 
It could be uh, a joint manipulation or a, a physical control to take the person to ground where they're more uh, readily controllable. And then that could escalate to uh, a hard uh, hand technique, which would be a strike, uh, a fist, an elbow, a knee strike, a, a kick of some sort. And then you start moving into the uh, use of force options that are considered impact weapons, uh, conductive energy weapons, pepper spray, those right. types of things. And then you continue on up to firearm. Dr. Blanford, so when you see these stories and you read about them and you see what's happening in terms of concerns about, you know, how police sometimes interact with people, what do you think? Like, have you been following some of these stories? I have. Uh, I've tried to familiarize myself with this particular case as much as possible uh, in a short time. And it's very similar to the types of cases that are happening across the country. One of the situations that has really come to the forefront over the past few years in policing is the number of persons that are suffering from uh, a mental illness or in distress uh, or drug-induced conditions. And it creates a real challenge for police because in many cases, police are trained to address an immediate issue. They're not trained to be mental health workers. And the expectation that an officer can arrive on scene and immediately determine whether a person is suffering from a mental illness, whether it's drug-induced, Uh, just a rage issue, it's very challenging. And quite often, they have to deal with the immediate threat to public safety first. Then they can address the mental health issue if it's an underlying condition. So there's a lot happening, and these situations are very dynamic. They're very fluid, uh, and they happen very quickly. Okay, so is it clear or not, though, that we need, perhaps officers really need more training on this, given that we are hearing in police forces right across the country that they are dealing with these kinds of cases, with mental health cases? Well, training is, is never a bad thing. It's always good to increase the knowledge, the awareness, and the, the competencies of officers on the street. But in order to, to train them to a, that high level that seems to be expected of officers, is somewhat unrealistic when you consider all the other issues that they have to receive training on as well. I think there needs to be a a more synergistic approach. The social safety net seems to have collapsed with the deinstitutionalization that happened in the the early 90s, the lack of resources available for social programs and mental health programs. So there needs to be a, a more concentrated synergistic approach and not having it fall upon police. The problem is, is that three o'clock in the morning, when you have someone who is suffering from that type of situation, it's the police that respond, and there's quite often no other resources available. So police are unfortunately thrust into that position and respond the best they can, but the reality is is that they're not trained to that high level as a, a mental health worker would be. Okay, so then... How, what would we do then in these situations? So if somebody is clearly having uh, an episode like what we have been hearing about, the call is to 911. The call is to police. What? How can we train the situation so that we respond differently? Well, the training can consist of uh, a number of different layers. The, the first one is, is teaching the officer to recognize when that person is in distress and the ability to discern whether it's alcohol-induced, whether it's mental health-induced, or, again, it's just a fit of rage. So the first component is being able to determine the, the underlying cause, and that requires training and, and recognition skills. Then the skills in de-escalation or understanding 
what a person suffering from mental illness is going through and how to respond to that is different. In many cases, uh, dealing with a regular person, the, the officer presence, the, the threat of the use of force is often enough to gain compliance. But when a person is not rationally thinking through these situations, those are often triggering mechanisms for those people, and they need to be approached in a different manner. Okay, so then, Dr. Blanford, what do you think the public should keep in mind when we are hearing and reading and watching these stories? Well, quite often they don't have the whole picture. That's the first case, and my understanding from this particular case is that there were no independent witnesses uh, to the actual incident. So, first off, you have to look at everything and understand that you do not have all the facts. The other point is that the use of force is dependent upon the officer's perception of the threat to themselves and to other members of the public. So each officer will respond differently. In this case, with a number of officers, one option is always to contain the person and allow them to work through the situation while additional resources, which need to be funded and included as part of the mental health response. Many organizations across the country are, are re- looking towards critical incident teams, CITs they call them, uh, working with officers. And those are specifically trained uh, mental health experts and practitioners that are able to respond on scene with the officers. So there needs to be greater funding and greater integration of these types of services into the police response to persons with mental illness. Dr. Blanford, thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. There's a lot of industries out there that are having labor shortages. For instance, let's just take the area of doctors, right? And then we hear about, well, why can't we get more internationally trained doctors to come here, use their credentials and work here? Or nurses or any other type of industry, actually, where you've got people who are perhaps trained elsewhere and they want to come here and work. Well, actually, internationally trained professionals are now being invited to share their views on the foreign credential recognition process in B.C. Let's learn more about this. Andrew Mercier is a Minister of State for Workforce Development and joins us now to talk about this. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Simi. So what is this effort all about? Yeah, so what what we're doing right now is we're seeking input on how to make the foreign credential recognition process across the board fairer and more transparent for internationally trained professionals. And, you know, like across uh, across our province and across our economy, we have jobs that are sitting empty and we have folks with, uh, you know, skills that are universal. Um, and knowledge that is universal, but credentials that are foreign, sitting working in low-wage jobs. And what we need to do is we need to identify where those log jams are, where the unnecessary barriers in the process are, and uh, and address and remove them. So we're going to be bringing forward legislation to do that, to reform the uh, foreign credential assessment process. But to do that, and to do that properly, we need to hear from internationally trained professionals and we need to hear from members of the public about their experience with the system. So we've launched a survey that's open until May 26th and you can go to it at engage.gov.bc.ca backslash govtogetherbc, that's G-O-V together B-C. Um, and, you know, give us your feedback because we need that uh, we need that input and we need that experience so that we can make sure that we've got the most fair Uh, in the most transparent foreign credential recognition process possible. Okay, so what kind of industries are we talking about here? Is it anybody with any kind of foreign credentials? 
Yeah, so what we're looking at is the regulated professions. So across British Columbia, we have 50 professional regulators and over 200 regulated professions. So everything from engineers to nurses. And we've started the work already in the uh, healthcare sector. Adrian Dix has started that with the Health Professions and Occupations Act. And we're building that out across the board. So if you have a, uh, a professional certification, um, uh, you know, from veterinarian uh, to, to architect, we want to hear from you and we want your input um, in this process. Okay, so is this about kind of cutting red tape? And we know that there is a shortage of veterinarians and in other industries. So how soon could we expect that to change? Yeah, so our what we want to do, and this is a pressing this is a pressing problem. It's a problem economically, but it's also a problem of basic fairness. And uh, our intention is to bring legislation forward this fall. Um, and but before we begin drafting that legislation, we need to make sure that we're speaking to people so that we do it right. Okay, so then what is that process like? Easy? Just a survey? Yeah, so right now we're doing a survey. I've been sitting down and speaking to professional regulators and also to groups of internationally trained professionals. And anecdotally right now, hearing the stories of folks uh, who have, in some cases, given up trying to go through the process and are working as, uh, as construction painters or have gone and gone to do um, laboring jobs just because of the timeline. So what we need to know is we need to know exactly where those uh, pressure points are across the board. And so the survey is going to be an absolutely critical part of that. All right. We'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. That's Andrew Mercier, who's the Minister of State for Workforce Development. This is interesting. It's about helping people with foreign trained credentials go to work here, maybe cutting some of that red tape. So apparently there's, you know, 230 regulated professions and there's 50 professional regulatory bodies that oversee those professions. And internationally trained professionals have to have their qualifications kind of recognized. They have to be certified, registered or licensed to work in their chosen profession. But it can be so cumbersome, right? How many times have we heard that? So is this survey the first step towards cutting some of that red tape? I would love to hear your story on this if you have one. This is Mornings with Simi. But it was a good time to check in on the childcare situation here. There's that childcare fee reduction initiative here in BC that is supposed to help reduce the cost of childcare for parents. And what happens is that childcare providers apply for it, they receive it, it's like a subsidy, they put it towards the fees that parents pay. Problem is, there is a backlog of contracts at the Ministry of Children and Family Development, and so they're not being processed, so the fees aren't coming through. This was supposed to be taken care of. We talked to the minister responsible that, oh yeah, it was going to be a delay of a few weeks, but what is still going on out there? Well, Brittany Newber joins us now, the owner of Busy Bees Daycare. Brittany, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me again. So where are you in this process now? So uh, basically, you know, we spoke a month ago and uh, most childcare centers were still waiting for approval. Um, I actually was asking for an increase, as I had mentioned. I uh, deferred my increase by a month so that I would be approved for April, well, temporarily approved, um, just so my parents wouldn't incur any extra costs. Um, And then I was then doing a new contract come May, and unfortunately, I am still waiting for the approval. So... What I'm in that, limbo right yeah, now. What does that mean for the parents then who use your daycare? 
so unfortunately, if the approval doesn't come in before May, then that means that the money that the government would have been covering actually has to be covered by parents, which is a huge chunk for parents to all of a sudden have to come up with. Right. So you talked about how yours was a little bit different because you were looking for the increase, right? Brittany, what yes. has the reaction been like from your parents? Um, honestly, they're they're not happy. Uh, you know, it's kind of an ongoing joke of it's up in the air. It's when the government decides to do it. Um, but it is a huge inconvenience and it's putting a lot of parents uh, in a worry, worrisome state because they don't know if they're going to be having to pay this extra money or if they are not. So, Right. So are you losing anybody as a result of this? I am luckily not losing anybody, but, you know, I'm just an in-home daycare. There are a lot of big centers out there who have still not been approved for April. So they have gone without April fees and potentially will be going out without May fees as well. So that is a huge hit. They have their rent to pay. They have their staff to pay. So it is, it's a lot bigger of a hit for them. So Okay. So then when you try to get in touch with the ministry, like where is this process at? Unfortunately, it is exactly the same as it was a month ago when I spoke to you. You know, trying to get a hold of them is nearly impossible. You call in and you're either just booted off completely and hung up on because it's too busy or you're on hold for hours upon hours. And their operation hours are 8.30 to 4.30, whereas most daycares run from 7 till 6 p.m. So all of us childcare providers are having to call in during working hours, which is an impossible task. So, Okay, are you hearing about this from other child care centers? Is this like a similar situation? Yes, yes, very much so. There, I am a part of a child care group, and there's very few people who have been approved with what they've asked for. I would say most of the child care centers out there that have applied with any form of increase, whether it be less than 3%, 3%, or a little above 3%, have either been temporarily approved because they've moved to their increased date or have not been approved at all yet. Okay, so have you thought about approaching this differently? Like, for instance, maybe putting off the increase again to try to get this? Unfortunately, uh, there are people who just can't do that. As of right now, uh, running a huge childcare facility is a very expensive uh, thing. So people aren't able to put off the increase again because they aren't even able to afford the bills that they do have right now, as well as pay, pay their staff. So it's it's not really a want, it's more of a need. Okay, now we were told by the minister that, oh, this was a blip. It was a couple of weeks. They were sorting it out. So what you're telling us now, Brittany, is that nothing has changed in the, what is it, six weeks since we last talked to you? Nothing has changed. And even for those lucky ones who have been approved, there has been nothing but issues with um, receiving those funds as well. So it's, you know, the same as what it was, but almost worse. <laughs> Oh, okay. Now, I was talking to someone recently um, at a at a social event that I was at. Somebody who works in, in your industry, they have child cares, child care centers, and they were talking about the incredible challenge of keeping employees. And that one of the reasons why they need to increase fees mm-hmm. is because of those salaries, because the demand is so great that essentially workers at child care centers are so in demand they can go anywhere they want to right now and get a raise. Has that been your experience? A hundred percent. ECE shortage, infant toddler shortage. It is so bad right now that uh, 
keeping a staff member, you have to be willing to pay above and beyond. And I mean, to be honest, this field of work is a lot. You work eight-hour, nine-hour shifts. You're working with anywhere from four to eight children per one staff member. That's a lot. You know, it is draining. And we want to show our appreciation for our staff members. But in order to be able to actually afford that, we need to be able to charge a proper amount. What would you say is the average hourly salary right now that you're paying? Uh, Well, it does vary depending on city, depending on um, certificates. But uh, there is also the wage enhancement that was mentioned by the minister, which has been fabulous. It is, you know, a $4 increase per ECE. Um, The problem is, is at this point in time, a lot of centers are having to hire people who don't have their ECE to work with the ECEs and infant toddlers because they can't find the staff. So in order to stay open, they need to find other credentials to work and they don't qualify for that fee increase, which means you're then paying that much more. So what I hear, Brittany, is that this is an industry that clearly is growing in leaps and bounds, right? Are these, do you think, growing pains or are these going to be systemic problems? Oh, I would like to think and hope that it would be growing pains, but I'm kind of leaning towards the other direction right now, honestly. Okay, so what's going to happen next for you in your business? Um, Well, I was hoping to open a center. I was hoping to grow in size, but um, due to, you know, I was looking at spaces, I was hoping to hire some staff, but uh, that has kind of been put out to the side because I'm not able to find staff. And especially with this whole funding debacle, I just don't know if I can handle that with a higher number of families and them being out this money. So So you're just putting everything on hold for now? Yes. I'm just going to pause and and maybe readdress it later on. <laughs> and, and do you think that's what other childcare centers are doing too? Saying, oh, but let's just wait and see what happens here. A hundred percent. There's also an incredible amount of amazing staff leaving the industry completely. They are leaving childcare and going and finding another career because it's just not working. Wow. All right, Brittany, thanks so much for the update on that. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Headline in the Washington Post that sent quite a few rumbles across Canada in the last 24 hours, particularly in Ottawa. It's a leaked secret Pentagon assessment obtained by that newspaper that says Prime Minister Justin Trudeau told NATO officials that Canada will never meet NATO's defense spending target and that at times Canada has been pressured by other NATO countries to even keep up on its military commitments. Widespread defense shortfalls hinder Canadian capabilities. That's what the document says and refers to straining partner relationships. Well, to talk about that this morning, Vincent Rigby joins us now, former National Security and Intelligence Advisor to the Prime Minister. Good morning, Vincent. Hi, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. What did you think when you read this? Not in the least bit surprised. Um, I think it's... uh the worst kept secret in NATO that that allies are a little bit discouraged by Canadian defense spending and what uh, Canada is able to bring to the table right now in terms of military capabilities. So um, not a not a great shocker. Does is does this do anything in Ottawa, though, do you think? Does it wake Canada up? Does it embarrass us? Well, it's been a longstanding issue. And so we have been at the bottom of NATO rankings when it comes to defense expenditures as a, as a percentage of GDP for a, a long, long time. So we've been living with this and 
having these ongoing conversations within NATO and outside of NATO with other allies in the Indo-Pacific region, for example. But um, will it do anything at the end of the day? I mean, you saw the Prime Minister's response, which was effectively, we do our share in NATO. We're a reliable partner. Uh, Minister Anand has said that we have made some equipment purchases recently. Defense spending is going up. That's all true, without a doubt. I think we, we have made some progress in the last number of months in particular with respect to spending on NORAD, uh, finally purchasing the F-35 fighter aircraft after a long time. But, but the real question is, is it, is it enough given the state of the world? And I've been on your show many times, and I've said that the state of the world is pretty poor right now. I think we're facing an international security environment unlike any that we faced since the end of the Second World War. I'm not sure that Canada's ready to step up if things go really, really badly in Europe or in the Indo-Pacific region. I guess what I also found interesting in this is that it says that really this isn't going to change because of public sentiment, like barring a change of public sentiment. So is it really that? Is it that the Canadian public is not that keen on doing this? Well, I think that's always part of it. I mean, is there are, are there votes in increasing the defense budget? And, you know, we're, we don't have an election that far away in all, in all likelihood. So we probably missed an opportunity given that the budget just came out a little while ago and there is no defense spending to speak of there. So, yes, there's a defense update going on right now. Apparently, they're trying desperately to finish it. But will there be more money at the end of that, uh, of that rainbow? I'm not, I'm not sure. And do Canadians want it? I mean, I've always said that, listen, it's up to the government to explain to Canadians the state of the world and what the threat is out there and what the government needs to do. Don't wait for Canadians to tell the government that the world is really unpredictable and unstable and you should be doing something. Uh, government has to lead in this, in this regard. And we're not having enough of a public debate about it, in my view. Have we ever? Probably not. I think it's been a long time. Again, I've said this on your show. We, we haven't had a defense. We've had a defense review, but we haven't had a foreign policy review or a national security policy review in a long, long time. And some of the consultations as part of the of defense reviews have perhaps not been as extensive as they as they could have been. But, you know, I've, I've said on many occasions, we need to have a broad discussion in Canada with Canadians about national security writ large, because I honestly believe that we're in a national security crisis right now. It's not just about defense. It's about broader security and intelligence issues that I've talked to you about before. We need to have a very holistic, comprehensive discussion about how we're going to respond to these threats. Because if things get really bad in Europe, if the war escalates beyond the Ukraine, um, if the U.S. and China go toe-to-toe over uh, Taiwan, uh, what is Canada going to be able to do? And I would say right at this point in time, not a lot in terms of hard military capabilities to support NATO or to support the U.S. in the Indo-Pacific region. So it's, uh, it's, it's a debate that has to happen. It has to happen soon. Right. But you, you mentioned having an election there. I can't think of any election that we have had where the idea of defense spending and spending more has been kind of widely talked about, has become a campaign issue. That, does, it, does that even happen in Canada? I, I think that uh, one of the few times it's happened is when the prime minister ran his first campaign back in 2015. And, and you, you may recall that there was, a, there was a good foreign policy debate and the prime minister did extremely well in that foreign policy debate. But the last two elections, it's, uh, it's barely been a blip. And I think in most other elections, it's, it's barely been a blip. So I think it's, I think it's time. And, and, and again, it's, it's, it's driven by the environment in which we live. There are just 
so many threats out there right now. We've not seen anything like this, as I say, in 75 years. And so we can't bury our head in, in the sand anymore. And listen, it's, it's not about percentages of, of GDP. I've, I've always found this whole notion of 2%. It's kind of an arbitrary figure at the end of the day. It's also a function of how well your economy is doing. So we have increased defense spending, but our economy has been doing reasonably well, all things considered, post-pandemic. So our, our, you, can, you can actually increase your defense spending, but as a percentage of GDP, it goes down. But it, it still begs the question, um, are you doing enough? And right now, even if we're the sixth largest spender in, in NATO, um, I, again, for, for me, the metric is if something really bad were to happen in the world right now, what would we be able to deploy? And I just don't think it's, it, it's there. So we can do more. We can definitely do more and we should be discussing it. We should. And I wonder if Canadians have the appetite for us to do more, though. And in the end, is, the, is any Canadian government, regardless of party, going to commit that when you know that, well, the Americans are probably, they're not going to want to have anything happen in their backyard anyway? Well, this is always the issue, right? And it's a perennial, perennial issue in, 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 in Canada. Um, guns and butter, the, the old, the old and debate. And, right. and, and there are so many other issues out there right now for, for Canada, uh, post-pandemic, the state of the economy, health care, housing, you name it, right? I mean, the list is very, very, very long. So where do you place national security? Um, virtually every government comes to power saying their primordial responsibility towards Canadian is, is the security of our people. Um, so again, given where we are right now, in the history of the world and what's happening geopolitically as well, ask yourself that question. Um, yes, healthcare is incredibly important. All these other social and economic issues yeah. are incredibly important. But if you don't take care of your security, all of those are ultimately at risk. Um, your economic prosperity, your, your democratic values, and the hard security of people, the safety and security of people, all of those are put at risk if you don't, if you don't at least pay some attention to national security. And I'm not saying the government has ignored it completely. That's not the case. They have done stuff, but it tends to be um, a little bit here, a little bit there, a spending announcement, and it's piecemeal. It's piecemeal at the end of the day. Where's the big strategy to get to get out of this mess? Right. That is the question. All right, Vincent, thanks so much for the discussion. My pleasure as always.